We continue today our, our study in the, uh, the book of First Peter. We're still in chapter 3. And, uh, you know, I really do believe it's, it's good to do what we're doing. It's good to, to go through verse by verse, covering, covering the whole book. What happens when we don't do that? We, we just pick the, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. You know, uh, it's, sometimes it's called cherry-picking. You know, I'll just... It's very easy just to talk about the things that we want to talk about. And uh, one of the, uh, that's one of the advantages. It's also a disadvantage as well. <laughs> because uh, sometimes things are uncomfortable to talk about. Sometimes things are, are difficult to talk about. Some passages are, are difficult to understand and difficult to explain. Some passages, uh, we, we have to say, you know, we... We don't quite understand. There may be different viewpoints. Some make more sense than others, but, you know, we, we have to have the humility sometimes in the scripture to say, you know, I, I don't quite get this, but it's still our responsibility to look at it, to dig into it, to pray about it, to search the scripture, compare this difficult passage with other passages in the scripture and let scripture interpret scripture. It's, it's a difficult thing sometimes to, uh, to master the word of God. It's something that we spend our whole lives doing. And when, when our life is over, we still don't know everything. Paul says we see darkly, but then we shall see face to face and it's all going to make sense. Well, this is one of these difficult passages. Uh, we're in, uh, First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. I was listening to, on what I'm saying here, I was listening to a recording. It was a, an audio sermon by A.W. Tozer, and he was going through the, uh, the book of First Corinthians. And he, as, he, as he approached one particularly different, difficult verse, he took about five minutes and said, you know, everything in the Bible, every chapter, every verse, every word that's, that's in the Bible was put there for a reason. The Holy Spirit inspired this book, and it's our responsibility to cover it all. Everything needs to be considered. I agree with Tozer. Now, let's, uh, let's read this. First Peter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God, for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we, as we uh, open up your scripture, we pray for your spirit to uh, illuminate it, Lord. Lord, teach us what you want us to know. Take us where you want us to go. Through your word, Lord, change us, transform our, our minds. Lord, show us who we are to be in, in you and, and who you are, Lord Jesus, to us. And it's in your name we pray, amen. 
Now, if you have questions about that passage, you're, you're in good company. Uh, Martin Luther was, was a great Bible commentator. He wrote some of, some of the most powerful commentaries that, that we have on our shelves. And he said about this passage, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other anywhere in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. But even so, I believe that the main message of this passage is, is very clear. And it's a, it's a temptation for us to take our eyes off from the, the main point of the message, the main theme of the, of the, uh, the passage, get off into the weeds and, and completely miss the point. I don't want to do that this morning. Some people with a text like this will, will zero in on the, the obscure and, and the difficult and totally miss the, the path that, that we are to take through God's word. And so the first thing we need to do is to consider the, the context of this passage. As we've gone along, we've seen in the previous, path, the previous verses that uh, Peter has been talking about suffering as, as believers. If we've suffered by bringing on our suffering on ourselves by bad contact, uh, conduct that's that's one thing but we also might suffer for doing the right thing and that's the situation that uh, peter's readers found themselves in you know they were experiencing very se- severe persecution by the hands of the uh, the roman empire why for the sake of jesus And Peter has just said in in verse 15 from last week that in the midst of suffering, we need to honor Christ as holy. We need to keep our perspective, eyes eyes on Christ as we go through this. We might feel that we've lost control, but we need to acknowledge and we need to embrace the the fact that Christ is in control. He knows what's going on in the midst of our suffering. And the... This, this passage continues this train of thought about how now we can look at Jesus Christ. We have an example in him. He suffered on our behalf. Not only that, but as we get into this passage, we see the, the whole of the gospel. Jesus rose from the dead. He's now glorified. He's, he's at the right hand of God. He's been exalted above all created things. This is the gospel. The death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the, and the glorification of, of Jesus Christ is, is the gospel. And that's the gist of this message. So whoever picked out that last song, that song says it all. Jesus is our hope. And the title of, of this message is, it's, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, in 1 Corinthians fifteen three through 8, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the gospel, gives us a, a picture. He gives us a description of what the gospel is. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I love that. He, he leaves off with the, uh, the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, the Christ who we walk with. Jesus, Peter says he suffered once for all. Jesus died and he suffered once for all and his singular sacrifice is enough. This is important. Christ's sacrifice does not need to be repeated. (laughs) This is huge. In, In the Old Testament, the sacrifice was repeated. Every year on the Day of Atonement, one commentator writes that the Day of Atonement served as a reminder that daily, weekly, monthly sacrifices made at the altar of burnt offering were not sufficient to atone for sin. Even at the altar of burnt offering, the worshiper stood afar off, unable to approach the holy presence of God who was manifest between the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. On this one day in the year, atoning blood was brought into the Holy Holies, the divine throne room, by the high priest as a representative of the people. The high priest made atonement for all the iniquities of the children of Israel in all their transgressions and all their sins. So this was a sacrifice that was repeated year after year, year after year. There's something deficient in this, right? We keep sinning. A sacrifice has to keep being made. That changed with Jesus. That changed with Jesus Christ. His once for all sacrifice is sufficient. He does not need to be sacrificed repeatedly. We have the Lord's Supper where we, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, don't we? We, we take the, the bread and, and the wine, which symbolizes Jesus' body and his blood, and we do this in remembrance of him, but this is a commemoration It's something we do in memory of Jesus. It's not a sacrifice. Jesus died in in our place. As a substitute, the the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He made it possible for us to come to God. He he brought us to to the Father. Isaiah 59.2 shows the the desperate plight we were in. He said, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sins separate us from God, but Jesus brought reconciliation through the finished work, his finished work on the cross through his shed blood. Peter goes on, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You know, Jesus came to earth as, as a man, one of us. Philippians 2 is a, a key verse. Jesus emptied himself, became a servant, came here for us, one of us. He was 
subject to pain. He was subject to suffering and, and even death. He, he took on flesh. He took on the curse of sin on our behalf in the flesh. And he bore our sins on the cross. And when he died, the penalty of that curse was paid by him. It was lifted. He died for us in the flesh. But Peter says he was made alive in the spirit. The spirit. That is the glorious thing of, of the gospel. The spirit of the living God raised Jesus from the dead. In Acts 2.24, it says God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So in Christ then, we have been put to death, our old self, and we have been made alive by that same spirit of, of God, that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead when we believe in Jesus as our Savior raises us to new life. And, and this, this is leading into this discussion about Christ, the, the resurrected one. So the gospel, we have Christ as the, the suffering Savior, now Christ, the resurrected one, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in his spirit. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. We need to unpack this, don't we? So this this is saying that in the spirit, Jesus went and proclaimed something to some people in some prison. What does this mean? This is a difficult passage because really this is the only mention of this event in, in the Bible. This is one of those passages where we don't see clearly. There, there are different viewpoints on what this means. We don't see clearly. We see darkly. And it's, it's okay. We need to be okay with mystery. We need to be okay and take on the humility that says maybe we don't know. But I think we can get a pretty good idea. You know, we again, we, we must not let the, uh, the lack of clarity um, cloud the meaning of, of the passage. You know, this, this passage is about the gospel. It's about the suffering, the death, the resurrection, and, and the vindication of Jesus. So let's, let's dive in. There's, in this, uh, this part here, there's, there's three basic views. And I'll, I'll, I'll present just a real brief version of them, and, and we'll end on the, the one that uh, I think is the best, which follows the, the context of, of the passage. One of them is the descent into hell view. And in this view, the, the through whom refers to Christ and the disembodied spirit prior to his resurrection. So between his death on the cross and the resurrection, this view says that Jesus went and preached to some spirits, which may be fallen angels of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, or perhaps the spirits of those who died in the flood, perhaps both. The prison refers to the underworld. The expression he went describes his descent 
into the underworld view. The view that Peter here is describing according to this view is a, a triumphal proclamation of Jesus Christ after his resurrection and prior to his exaltation. The through whom refers to some kind of spiritual existence of Christ after his. The spirits refer to the fallen angels of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. The prison describes some upper region of binding or in the words of Second Peter 2, 4, the pits of darkness. He went refers to the ascent of Jesus. He preached, describes a proclamation of victory that Jesus announced over the spirit world as he descended to the right hand of God. This, this view might be a little better. You know, it's proclaiming his, his vindication, proclaiming his victory. Let's move on to the third view, which I believe is better. This is the uh, pre-existing Christ view. Through whom in this view describes the uh, pre-existent Christ in the person of Noah, Track with me for a second here. The spirits are the uh, contemporaries of Noah, those people to whom Noah was preaching who needed to hear the word of God. The prison is a metaphor for the sin and ignorance or a literal description of their location now. And he went refers neither to a descent nor an ascent, but rather describes simply that Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, spoke to this generation through Noah None of these views is without problems. But I believe this view is the best. It, it, I think it fits best into the, the wider argument of this book. Uh, there are several reasons that this view is supported by Scripture. First Peter calls Noah in Second Peter, Second Peter 2 5 a herald of righteousness. This word herald really is one who preaches. The same word is used, or the, the, the noun form, verb form, is used here in our passage about Jesus preaching. Jesus was heralding. The word in the original language corresponds to uh, 1 Peter 3.19. Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 1.11, we covered this kind of early on, that the spirit of Christ spoke through the Old Testament prophets. You know, the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the spirit of Christ. And the spirit of Christ, according to Peter in that first chapter, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ spoke through the prophets. And the context indicates that Christ was preaching through Noah who was persecuted by those around him. Noah suffered as he, as he built this ark, and God saved Noah. So, uh, you know, we need to ask, what's the point? How does this apply to us? Is this just some obscure thing that, that uh, Peter put in here? Or is it something the Holy Spirit wants us to, to listen to? We need to ask, what's the point? How does this affect us? Here's the point. Peter uses Noah... Peter uses his example to encourage us as Christians to stand up for righteousness and try to be an influence for the gospel, even in the midst of suffering. 
I believe that definitely fits the context of this passage. Let's keep going in the passage. We're not through yet. Now, Peter next ties Noah in with with baptism. He says a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, he says, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So Peter is uh, tying this, this idea of salvation to baptism somehow. He says we're, we're saved by, by baptism. And, uh, you know, this, this might cause your, your ears to per, perk up. The, uh, the word safely as Noah was, Noah and these eight people were brought safely through water. It means being rescued or, or delivered from a, a hazard or a danger. These eight people were, were delivered through the water or by the water, the, the, the word could mean. Peter says baptism saves you. Now, some people are going to say, aha, this, this proves baptismal re- regeneration. There, there are some groups within Christianity which, who, who say that uh, baptism is, some, is part of salvation, part of our regeneration, that we, we cannot be born again without being baptized. We cannot be justified until we're baptized. We reject this view. Where we can get in trouble is in how we define this word salvation, how we define the word save. And we, we have talked about this before. You know, if you ask me, well, when, when were you saved? I'm probably going to say I was saved when I was uh, six years old at vacation Bible school. I believed in Jesus as my Savior. He saved me from my sins. I'm his now. <laughs> and that would be true. But salvation goes much further than that. It goes beyond that. Peter does not say here that baptism regenerates you. He does not say that baptism justifies us. He says it saves us. It it rescues us. It delivers us. Just as the water lifted that boat up off from the earth, Delivering Noah and those eight people from the world, the sin in the world, the violence in the world. Remember that uh, in Genesis 6, it says the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? Verse 11, it says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. It's curious here that Peter does not say that the, uh, the ark saved them, that the wood that the ark was constructed with saved them. He says the water saved them. He said that they were saved through the water. They were saved by the water. So just as the water delivered Noah and his family from the world and its, its evils and its violence. Peter contends that baptism deliver us 
delivers us from the world and the, the things of the world, the sin of the world, the violence of the world. Baptism, according to Peter here, is a pledge of good conscience towards God. He says not the physical washing of the body, but it's a, it's a declaration of our commitment to God. When we're baptized, we make a public declaration. We make that declaration before God, before the church, before the world. We're declaring, I am his. He is mine. I'm no longer part of this world. I'm a citizen of heaven. Though we're not born again by being baptized, you know, sometimes I wonder if we don't take baptism seriously enough as, as Protestants. You know, Jesus commanded it, didn't he? He said in the Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey what I've, I've commanded. Jesus commands us to baptize. That's that's pretty compelling reason to uh, to do this. You know, baptism carries a very significant meaning. I'd like for us to look at that because believers in many other cultures do take it seriously. In, in countries where Christians are persecuted, baptism carries a lot of weight. Asian Access, a Christian missionary agency in South Asia, Asia, listed a series of questions that some church planners have been asking new believers who are considering baptism. So these are people who have believed. They've been born again. They've been saved from their sin. They're considering baptism. Uh, Due to safety concerns, Asian Access doesn't mention this country's name, but this country is predominantly Hindu. And over the past few decades, Christian has, Christianity has grown in popularity, it says, especially among poor and tribal peoples. The following seven questions serve as a reality check for what new believers in Jesus might experience if they decide to go public with their decision to follow Christ, which is what they see baptism as being. Here are the seven questions. One, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Two, are you willing to lose your job? Three, are you willing to go to the village and to those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Four, are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Five, are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Six, are you willing to go to prison? Seven, are you willing to die for Jesus? This is the weightiness of this act of baptism in in this country that that they're talking about. You know, these seven questions really serve as a, a sober reminder for us what it might cost to to follow Jesus. You know, these these questions also help Western Christians identify with the threats faced by our brothers and sisters from other countries as they seek to follow Christ. Interesting article. When we lived in Longview, Texas, my first pastorate, uh, I I knew a new Christian, a a brand new baby Christian from Thailand. 
He was a, a student at Letourneau University, and he was now attending our, our church. His name was Isaroth. Isaroth was saved out of Buddhism. And he was really struggling with, with this idea of baptism. Back in Thailand, his dad, whom Isaroth was very close to, had no problem with Isaroth being a Christian, giving mental assent to Christianity. He said, okay, well, that's how you think. That's fine. Whatever. But baptism, that's another story. Isaroth knew that when he was baptized, he was leaving his old life behind. He was making a public declaration. He was doing, as Peter said here, making a pledge of good conscience to the Lord. You know, baptism for Isaroth was a, a clean break in, into a new life. It was, you know, it was like burning a bridge behind him as, as, he, as he moved on. And the thing was, he was asking us for prayer. He was asking the church to just pray earnestly for this because, you know, what Isaroth wanted? He wanted his dad to be there and watch him be baptized. All the way from Thailand. You know, it was, it was a big deal for him that that his father would, would see his witness for Jesus Christ. It was it was a pledge to him as a pledge to us as the church. It was a pledge to his family, a pledge to God that I have decided to follow Jesus. You know that song? No turning back, no turning back. He wanted his father to know that he was a new creation. In, in Jesus Christ. Now, Israel was justified when he believed in Jesus as his Savior. Baptism did not accomplish that. What did accomplish that? The blood of Jesus Christ. But baptism signifies more than just the physical act of getting your skin wet. That's what Peter is talking about. He says it's, 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 it's so much more than... than a, a physical cleansing, a, a physical getting wet, getting the dirt off your body. So Israeth was baptized. His dad was there. He was, in Peter's words, saved by baptism. He was delivered from the world in the sense that he made this public confession of his faith. You know, a contract, so to speak, a, a handshake. Yes, Lord, I am, I am yours. The world no longer has a hold on me. I'm a new creation. And Paul gives a verse which I think helps clarify this. Uh, Romans 10.10, 10, Paul says this, For with the heart one believes and is justified, but with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's what Israeth was doing right here with his mouth and with this act of being baptized. He was making confession to everyone. I've decided to follow Jesus. So again, the key to understanding this is to properly define this this word save or, or salvation. The, bab, the Bible does not teach baptismal regeneration. Don't don't hear me wrong. Are we going to see people in heaven who haven't been baptized? Yeah, I know of at least one. That thief on the cross, right? 
So Peter says, baptism saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's the resurrection and it's what followed the resurrection that gives us unimaginable hope in third point here, Christ the exalted one. You know, the, the resurrection gives us hope because Jesus Christ is alive. We know that we will be made alive into eternity. Uh, w- without the resurrection, there is no gospel. You know, Paul says that if Christ isn't raised from the dead, we're of all people most to be pitied. We're fooling ourselves. But he was raised. He is alive. This would be a good Easter sermon. You know, we need to be celebrating Easter every week, I think. <laughs> every day as we celebrate the, the living Christ, the one we hope in and trust in and walk with on a daily basis. Peter answers this question, okay, what came after the resurrection? He says, Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is, this is the pinnacle of the gospel, the living Christ, the glorified Christ who, who intercedes on our behalf, who sits at the right hand of the Father. He said, I, I'm not going to desert you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He's sent his Holy Spirit that same spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God to be with us, to be in us, to teach us, to convict us, to empower us. That's how we have victory to live a Christian life. You know, we were we were cleansed from our sin by the blood of Christ on the cross. And he says, we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Peter said that in chapter one. We, we have life from, from above, eternal life. And Jesus is there. He's in heaven interceding on our behalf. Paul writes this great piece in, uh, in Ephesians 1, 16 through 23. He says, he says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is what the apostle Paul is praying for these saints, these fellow believers in, in Ephesians, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, having put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do we have hope or what? Do we have glory? Do we have power? Yes, we do, because we are in him. We, we are in the one who is the, the exalted one, the victorious one, the glorified one. He's victorious over all. He's the head of the church. Yeah. High above the angels. High above all power. Rulers, authorities. And it's because of the resurrection that we can be delivered from the world by baptism as an appeal to God for a, a good conscience. You know, the, the inner working of the, the living Christ through the Holy Spirit who saves us in order to live unto God. The life we live, we live because of Jesus Christ. The, the, uh, the glorified one, the exalted one, through the Holy Spirit, we, we should be living in victory. Victory over the world, over temptation, over sin. All this is, is possible because Jesus Christ lives and he is exalted, he is glorified, and we have his Holy Spirit. Let me conclude, it's, Again, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's our, he's our Savior. He's our Lord. He died in the flesh. He was raised in the Spirit. He lives, and he lives to deliver us. And that salvation that we talk about in the, in the broader sense continues to rescue us and deliver us on a moment-by-moment basis. Yeah, we, we sing... We sing about the living Christ. We have a lot of hymns that, that celebrate this. One that came in mind and to my mind in particular as I was uh, meditating on this was a song that has these words, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth living because he lives. Seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted above all things, our Lord, our, our King, the head of the church. He suffered. He died, but, but he has been vindicated. His, his return will be, as our, our statement of faith says, personal and bodily and, and glorious. And he's coming back. He's coming back at a time when none of us know. We need to be constantly aware of that and ready for his return. We need to live in constant expectancy. He could return right now, this moment. That would be glorious. He's our blessed hope. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood of Christ. This cleansed us from sin. Thank you for your salvation then and now. As you 
Save us, Lord, from the influence of sin today. And as, as we know, we'll be glorified. That, that's the ultimate salvation that we'll experience. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today who does not know you, they're missing out, Lord. Lord, speak to their heart. Today's the day of salvation. Now, now is the time for them to come to you, Lord. Lord, let us all make a, a pledge of good conscience to you, de- declaring, Lord, that we are yours, that uh, the world has nothing for us. Lord, we want to live for you. We want to live with you side by side. Teach us to pray, Lord. Lord, do your work in us and through us. Lord, that we might live lives that are well-pleasing to you. And Father, we, we come to you because of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.